This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash checkthelocks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. To check the locks presents true crime for the short on time. As always, I'm John Connor. I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying bite-sized true crime case. Before we begin, Olivia, as always, it's wonderful to see you. How are you? How has your week been? I'm doing pretty good. My week's been really great. Pretty low-key, nothing too exciting. Taking the dog on some walks, you know, doing some chores. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, just trying to get over being sick. And we are still recording on that rough night, but I think that steroid shot that I got is really helping because for some reason, I simultaneously feel like I'm dying and like I have the strength of 10 men all at one time. <laughs> so should be uh should be interesting, but I am short on time. I know you are short on time. It is 1130 Central right now as we're recording, and I am sure that the audience is short on time. So should we quit with the Gabby Gabby, get into the stabby stabby? Do you think we should just jump into this week's episode? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So this episode, we're going back to 1994. And I, I had never heard of it, but I'm sure there will be some of our listeners that I think will probably have heard of it. Yeah. And this is one that I have heard of as well. Um, I was very young when this happened, but I do remember it. And I do think, I mean, do you think we should give a little bit of a disclaimer before we get into this one? Yes, I think that would be the right thing to do. Okay. Gotcha. So if you are listening, we just want to make sure that we're letting you know, because I know we cover a lot of really messed up stuff from time to time in the show and we don't give a lot of disclaimers. So this case, it does involve children. Uh, it does involve sexual abuse. It also involves suicide. So it dives into some dark things. And I know sometimes one of those things is okay to get through or, you know, maybe a combination of them, but all three of those may be a little much. So we're not trying to run you off. We want you to listen to the episode, but we also don't want anybody to be blindsided as we go into it. So just fair warning it. Do you think that's that's fair? Oh, yes, absolutely. So with that being said, you want to go ahead and get into it? Yeah. All right. Awesome. Take it away. On October 25th, 1994, a young woman came hysterically beating on the door of Rick McLeod. 
McLeod called 911 stating that a woman was carjacked at gunpoint. Susan Smith's burgundy Mazda protege had been stolen with her two children inside. Three-year-old Michael and 14-month-old Alexander. The woman told dispatch that it was a black male who had taken her car. Now, this story is probably familiar to some of our listeners, like I've said, as it made a huge media presence in 1994. I was only four years old in 1994, so definitely wasn't on my radar. Yeah, strangely enough, I was 10. Oh, I was nine, about to be 10. And I do remember this story because I remember my parents talking about it. Like this was huge national news. And Mm -hmm. it seemed like every person with a child, especially when it was like the victim had been carjacked and these two kids were taken and you couldn't find the kids. Like it was a a really big deal. But that's really what I remember of it. I don't remember a lot of the details and stuff like that. I, you know, I know I have a sense of what happened after this, but and I don't want to spoil any of the details of the case or anything like that, but it, it was it was really a big deal at the time. Yeah, I mean, I think in 1994, people, you know, kids were getting kidnapped and it was probably being more on the news media outlook and stuff. But I think that this was probably the time when, you know, you saw more of the like the family press conferences and, you know, people pleading. I think this is kind of like when you started to see an uptrend in that as years have gone on. Yeah, it was definitely crazy at the time. So Susan and David Smith took to the media and pleaded for the safe return of their two young boys. For nine days, the news was full of press conferences, but during this time, police started to become suspicious of Susan. Susan Lee Vaughn Smith was born September 26, 1971 in Union, South Carolina. As a child, she had a troubled upbringing. Her father committed suicide when she was just six years old, and Susan herself attempted suicide when she was just 13. Her mother eventually remarried Beverly or Bev Russell, who molested Susan during her teenage years. She eventually graduated from high school in 1989, and not too long after, she developed a relationship with a married man. But when the man ended their affair, Susan made a second attempt at suicide. A year or so later, Susan married David Smith on March 15, 1991. But their relationship was also rocky. They separated several times throughout their marriage, and during one of their breaks, Susan began to see a man named Tom Finley, and David would finally file for divorce in September 1994. Now, on October 27, 1994, just two days after the boys went missing, David and Susan took a polygraph test. When Susan was asked about the location of the carjacking, she claimed that when she approached the intersection, the light turned red, forcing her to stop. She also said that there were no other cars in sight. Susan's description of the carjacker was very vague, and additionally, Smith's story continued to change over the next couple of days, and another polygraph test was taken. The results of that test were inconclusive. On November 3, 1994, after nine days of intense scrutiny and full media attention, Sheriff Howard Wells sat down to interview Susan. Wells told Susan that there was no way that the light at that intersection would have turned red unless there was another car present in the other lanes. Ah, so I get what he's saying. So there are some lights that like have sensors. So I don't know if you've ever had this happen before, but like if you don't pull up far enough at a light, like it won't change. It'll just stay red because it's waiting for that car. So if that light was green, the only way that it would change is if it picked up that there was another car waiting to turn and then it would cycle through. But if not, it's going to stay at green to allow the flow of traffic. Yeah, I figured this, I'm picturing this as like a two-laned highway road with a like a perpendicular intersection and the main highway road stays green unless someone shows up to make a turn. 
Yeah. You have to inch up, but that's happened. I remember when I moved to Tennessee, I didn't know that was a thing. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, what is this punishment light? I'm like, here thinking about every terrible thing I've ever done in my life. And then (laughs) Kara was like, you just got to inch up a little bit. And then it cycled through and I went, I was like, oh, okay. But yeah, if you don't know, it's real tricky. Now, Wells told Smith that sheriffs had been conducting surveillance at this particular intersection and that he knew she was not telling the truth. It was then that Sheriff Wells threatened to release this information to the media. Immediately, Susan began to confess to the murders of her two sons, Alex and Michael. She told police she drove down the road with her sons in the car seats in the back seat. She claimed that at the time she felt lonely and suicidal. It was then that she proceeded to drive to John D. Lake. Now, Susan had originally planned to roll the car into the lake, but at the last minute, she exited the car and watched as it rolled into the water with her children inside. Susan then gave police the exact location of the vehicle and divers were able to locate the car. Sadly, the bodies of her sons remained in their car seats. Susan Smith was arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder. The trial was held at Union County Courthouse with Judge Howard in charge and only planned a week-long schedule to complete the case. The first day of trial was July 10, 1995. During voir dire, the prosecution was aiming for the death penalty. Twelve jurors were selected along with two alternates. The media attention heightened as Susan Smith had falsely accused a black man of kidnapping and killing her children. The jury consisted of five white males, two white females, four black males, and one black female. The defense argued that the jury was biased because there were nine men and only three women, and it was not a representation of the community. But Judge Howard overruled. Oddly enough, on July 18, 1995, the day set for opening statements, the Union County Courthouse received a bomb threat that required immediate evacuation. However, this incident was found not to be related to Smith's trial. One more odd incident happened before the trial could even begin. Judge Howard removed a juror from the panel and had her jailed for lying about pleading guilty to a crime. She had committed credit card fraud and had been sentenced to six months in jail and fined $10,000. Now with the juror removed and the first alternate being used, the trial could begin. And opening statements would finally start July 19, 1995. The prosecution's opening statement started with, For nine days in the fall of 1994, Susan Smith looked this country in the eyes and lied. She begged God to return her children to safety, and the whole time she knew her children were lying dead at the bottom of John D. Long Lake. They continued to tell the jury that Michael and Alex Smith died because their mother wanted to reclaim Tom Finley, and the only way to get him back was to discard her children. The state's team continued to base their theory that Susan needed to escape her loneliness and unhappiness by continuing a romantic relationship with Tom. They would present a letter found in her sunken car from Tom Finlay calling off their relationship. Now, Finlay later would testify proving he wrote the letter stating he no longer wanted to continue their relationship and a big proponent was her children. He did not want to be in a relationship with a woman who had children. The prosecution continued to claim that Susan took her children's lives to selfishly pursue a relationship with Tom Finley. Now, the defense's opening statements asked jurors to look into their hearts and see the disturbed, childlike figure who, after a lifetime of sadness, snapped. They claimed that Smith was deeply depressed and that she had a sense of failure in her life. The defense team had her stepfather, Bev Russell, testify, telling the jury that he did indeed molest Susan when she was a teen and that they had engaged in sexual relations not long before the incident on October 25, 1994. 
The defense claimed that she was really attempting suicide again, but at the last minute chose to save her life and losing her children in the act, calling it survival instinct. Smith's team had Dr. Seymour Halleck testify that Smith was competent to stand trial and she was diagnosed with dependent personality disorder. After closing statements, Judge Howard allowed for the jury to consider a lesser charge of involuntary manslaughter, which would have Smith only sentenced to three to ten years in prison. But then, another strange twist with the jury. Right before deliberations began, one juror claimed that they had family ties to the case and the last alternate replaced the juror. So the jury began to deliberate for two and a half hours and finally returned a verdict of guilty on two counts of murder. Susan Smith was sentenced to 30 years to life with the possibility of parole, surprisingly, next year in 2024. At which time Susan will be 53 years old. That's crazy. Yeah. Now in 2000, Susan Smith, who was 28 at the time, made headlines again. This time for having sex on multiple occasions with 50-year-old prison guard Houston Cagle. Officer Cagle pled guilty and spent three months in prison. And in 2001, Captain Alfred Rowe also pled guilty to sexual relations with Smith. Captain Rowe was sentenced to five years of probation. During her incarceration, Susan Smith has had several disciplinary infractions, including self-mutilation and drug use. As of 2019, Susan Smith, who was 48, had settled down and not gotten in much trouble over the last few years. Now, as for David Smith, Susan's husband that, you know, she had Alex and Michael with, I was reading an article that said that, you know, he had a hard time, you know, moving on from this. He lost two of his kids and basically he was already on the verge of losing his wife because they were getting divorced. He filed for divorce a month before this happened, but it said he didn't want to have kids, but he eventually remarried a woman named Tiffany and they have two children named Savannah and Nicholas. So I thought that was kind of, you know, special that he was able to move on and, you know, move past this. Never forget, but move past it. So that's this week's episode. Yeah, this one was hard for me. I know normally we kind of go back and forth, but just going through the story and hearing everything that this person did, it was just, I I found myself just kind of soaking it in. And the first thing, and I know I've talked about this before, but I just have such a hard time with cases that involve kids, especially kids like that young. You know, because these kids are in a car with someone that they most likely trust with all of their heart. Yeah, they're three and 14 months old. Yeah, and they would never imagine that this person would want to harm them, you know, and like just thinking about what would be in their heads, you know, as mom gets out of the car and rolls the, the car into the lake. I don't know. It, it makes my heart like feel like it's crying. It's just it just it hurts, you know. I know I figured when I did this episode, I would get your heartstrings, but I honestly didn't intend to look for this case. I found this case by reading a Reddit thread that was talking about the convicted felon sleeping with like prison guards. And then I just started reading it and I was like, this is awful. Yeah, it's really heartbreaking. I don't, you know, I definitely don't think you were like, oh, this one's going <laughs> to make John tear up. Let me, you know, let me terrorize him. I think, you know, as hard as it is to talk about these cases and things like that, like it's important, you know what I mean? Because I really feel like what we're seeing as we're going through this is the effects of generational trauma, Mm -hmm. you know, and someone just wanting someone to actually love them. And I think it's very obvious that Susan was a relationship addict. You know what I mean? Like she's just Mm -hmm. looking for some kind of validation That's why you're jumping from person to person. And when you have that kind of mental illness, 
you know, it's like, that. this is all I want and I'll do anything. You know what I mean? If that means sacrificing my own children, it's sad because those kids lost their lives because their mom was broken and their yeah. mom was broken because somebody molested her and took advantage of her. And I mean, even like, and still was to the, yeah. this, to the day of the crime. Yeah. You know, and Tom Finley was 50 years old. Right. And she was 20, 23, I think. So like she was young and he was an older man. Yeah. Like when you said that they were still having sexual relations, like her and her stepfather, like up Mm -hmm. until shortly before this happened, I was like, oh my God, like it's just, it's, you know, it's insane, you know? And then thinking about how, you know, not only her hurt caused the death of her children, but then also, you know, I'm sure that it caused her husband, you know, Mm -hmm. like you don't have, you can't be David Smith and have something like that happen and a part of you not die forever. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know? When my daughter was born, I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but like, I remember her being born and really being afraid up until the point that she got here that like, I wasn't going to feel connected to her. I talked to people and people were like, you know, sometimes it is an instant, you know what I mean? Like you have to, it takes time. And so I I had like this fear that she was going to like come into the world and I was going to be like, I don't know you were strangers. And as soon as the doctor put that baby in my arms, it was immediately like, I love you more than like, I am a lion and I will kill anything that tries to hurt you. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. And so like thinking about that, it is just so hard to think that anybody could do that to their kids. Mm -hmm. This one, this one for me, I'm going to put it at 10 because just because of the fact that it is so heartbreaking, I'm not worried about anything happening. I'm not checking my locks. You know, I don't think my mom's going to show up with a minivan and be like, get in the back. But yeah, I'm a little too old for that, but it's just so, it's so incredibly sad and so devastating. Yeah. On all ends, you know? Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. It's hard. So I'm putting it on 10. What about you? I know I just talked a whole lot and I'm sorry, but I had to like. It was everything I was holding I in as you were going through the I, story. Once I finished this case, I was like, I'm going to really get on John's. I, that's when I talk about the kids. It really gets you. And I mean, I, I would be the same way. I am the same way. Yeah, it's hard. It's But what are you thinking? I mean, where are you at? Where you I'll put it at like a four. You know, it's not going to make me check the locks. I think on the scale of like criminality, it's a 10 for me, but not scary. But I'm going to put it at a four. It was definitely tugged on my heartstrings. And like once I knew about it, like I couldn't not continue on. And there's definitely a lot more details. But since this was a short on time this week, and I'm sure a lot of people have heard of this, I didn't spend a lot of time going into it. But um, there's several TV shows now about it and different criminal minds and stuff, you know, based off of it. So I think there was like a law and order also. It's like this story's been known, but definitely, you know, if you're interested, check out more, you know, details about it. Yeah. And I mean, we didn't even touch on like the low key, like racism and like the Uh societal impact to just, you know, have the privilege of a white woman to be like, oh, it was a black guy, a black guy carjacked Mm -hmm. me, you know, and then everybody's immediately like, oh, well, that must be true, you know, and then. Yeah. And how it probably impacted the community. It's a small town. Right. You know, and like, especially in South Carolina. Mm hmm. Even now, like, you know, we've come a long way, but like I live in the South racial, you know, race relations 
aren't as great as they should be for the right. year that we have made a lot of progress, but we're not at yeah. all like close to where we should be. But no. you know, just thinking too, like if you're a member of the black community, you know, thinking that like somebody in your community did this and, and then you just find out that, you know, somebody just lied to cover themselves. There's a whole nother thing. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm with you. Like I'm not checking my locks tonight, but I will tell you, I will be laying in bed tonight and I'll be thinking about these kids. Yeah. And I think that's why for me, It'll be a 10. And like the other thing that I think really kind of crept into my psyche a little bit is thinking about David. He probably had no idea that Susan Smith was capable of this. Oh, you know? no. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he knew she had her issues, but I don't think he probably ever in a million years thought the woman he would marry and mother his children would drive them into a lake. Yeah. And that hits on a whole nother level too. Cause you know, mm-hmm. like being a married guy, like, you know, again, I don't think this is anything I would ever have to worry about with my wife or anything like that, but it's like, it, it kind of touches on the same thing of like the spouses killing spouses. It's like, I like, I love you. And I would never in a million years think you're capable of doing something this horrific only to find out that like you do, you know, so but like she could just disappear. Women just disappear all the time or just run away from their families and abandon their problems or just give custody to your husband. Yeah, just abandon your family and let your children live their life with their father. Yeah. And then I also wonder, because with mental illness, it's like, you know, for her, was this a sympathy thing? Like the life that I have is like somehow going to be the life that you are going to like live and you're going to be the victim of all my trauma and all that. And, you know, so I don't know, like I said, it's just really layered. And it, what it really comes down to is Michael and Alexander aren't with us anymore. And that's, it's just heartbreaking. You know what I mean? Like when you were talking about them pulling out the car and the kids still being in the car seats, I, j- I couldn't say anything. I had to process it. So like I said, I'm sorry for rambling it all out here at the end, but the whole time I was just like, work through it, much. work through it. Cause you're mm-hmm. going to have to talk about it. So. All right. Well, that was it, John. Sorry to bring such a downer. I mean, they're all kind of downers. They're all murders, but this one was tough. Yeah, it was tough. But like I said, I think these are important cases to talk about, you know what I mean? And and to try to understand. And, you know, hopefully the more that we know about them, especially because that's another crazy thing, too, is like when we started this, I never thought like I knew we'd be talking about mental health, mm-hmm. you know, because like a lot of these killers have mental health. But like what I have found that we talk about a lot is like the lack of mental health services and like people yeah. getting the help that they need, you know, mm-hmm. from a young age, Susan needed help that she did not get. It's like stopping that first domino from falling because as soon as that first domino falls. It's just one after the next. Yeah. This was a good one. It was a heartbreaking one. It was interesting going back all these years and like really getting into the details of it. But that is where we are landing on the dead bull test this week when we are talking about Susan Smith and the murder of Michael and Alexander Smith. But we want to know where does this case fall on your dead bull test? As always, you can let us know. Reach out to us on Instagram. Check the locks pod. Find us on Twitter. Check the locks. Reach out to us if you're in the Facebook group. Uh, I got to be honest with you. This case is, you know, these are the kind of cases. so sad right now. I know these are the kind of cases that we do where I'm like, I really need to lean on this community. So like, yeah, um, let us know in the Facebook group how you're feeling. Uh, if you're, you know, if these kind of cases hit you the way they hit me, I know we touched on that a lot when we did the Athena Strand case. Um, it kind of hit in the, the same way. So, you know, we'd love to hear what you think. And if you have children, if you're listening to this, give them extra hugs, you know, tell them that you love them, you know, enjoy them a little bit more. Carve some time out of your day to just enjoy them because the world's a crazy place. 
Usually we talk about the Patreon, all that stuff. You know where the Patreon is. If you are interested in supporting the show, you can find that information in the show notes. You know, this doesn't feel like the kind of case where it's like, let's jump into how you can you know, support us. Yeah. But we will say, you know, listening in every week and sharing this with your friends, it really does help us grow. So as always, if that is you, if you're listening and you are sharing the show every week, just know that we appreciate it from the bottom of our hearts. And that is it for this week's case. But please make sure you're subscribed. Check the locks on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. We will see you next week with another truly terrifying bite-sized true crime case. But until then, don't forget to check the locks. See you next week. Have a good one. Love those babies. Love those babies.